This episode of The Wire Stripped is dedicated to our Hamsterdam-level patrons. They are Wayne Edge, Rachel Bolton, Stian Gjelseth, Dominic Tollen, Simon Lubinus, Paul Simons, Richard Knoll, Eric Weiss, Martin Mangum, Morgan Tanji, Anders Eriksson, Rasul Mowat, Steve Toes, Paul Wallace and Patrick Birch. If you want to join these guys and get your names read out at the top of the show, just head to thepatreon.com forward slash thewirestripped or go to patreon.com and type in thewirestripped and enter your details there. Thank you very much. I mean, when I first read the script, I'm like, wow, this, I don't know where this thing is going, but this is, uh, it's very exciting and it's something that I definitely want to be a part of. And um, I'm surprised because we get the script, you know, a couple of weeks before we shoot it. And I'm, each time the scripts came in, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see. It's a page turner. A page turner. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Kobe. And this is The Wire Stripped. It's the podcast where we watch The Wire week by week by week. And we also hear from some of the cast, some of the crew, and you guys as well. That's right. This week we are watching episode eight of season three. It's a really fun alliterative title. It's called Moral Midgetry. Crawl, walk, and then run. Damn right. She <laughs> on with the episode. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track. When you walk with Jesus, He's gonna save your soul. Just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. He got the fire. All right, Kobe, here we are in the funeral home. The New Day Co op funeral home. The heart of the Barksdale organization. (laughs) And the end for many. Yes. <laughs> um, again, as, same same as uh, last week's episode. There's a lot of there's a lot of strands to follow here. Uh, some strands are not that yeah. large, but there's there's a lot of seeds being sowed and tended to to then sprout. Uh, I don't know why I'm using a lot. Of, uh, <laughs> this is quite an analogy. Is this going to end in Jack and the Beanstalk? <laughs> it is. Yeah. There's a giant. <laughs> I like. Um, I I I, li- I like how this shows becoming so difficult and unwieldy to talk about. Um, it's almost harder to keep track of all of this than it is to watch it. Whereas you compare it to like first series when it was just like we were just talking about, well, we had the cops and the bad guys. Yes. <laughs> Not that they are the bad guys. There are no good guys and bad guys, but it was like cops and drug dealers. There's two sides. Yeah, we had two sides. Now we have six sides and because we've got... You've got the politics, you've got uh, two districts um, in the police, we've got two rival gangs, Yeah. we've got, and then we've got sort of standalone characters like, uh, like Cutty yeah. and then the Deacon who sort of come in and out of these uh, of these yep. organisations. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. Well, let's start with the politics side. Um, Karkeri is getting his claws into politics, understanding how to rile people. Um, getting his oar into in Burrell and Rawls' face because he's, now's the time for him to step up and say, witness protection is shit in this in this in this city in this county. How do we sort this out? Pisses off Tony Gray a bit because Tony Bray, Gray wants to pull this out of his own. Bag yeah, he thought he week. was running for mayor. Yeah, exactly. That was his plan. Um, and it's a nice little reverse play because a few episodes ago we had kind of had them. Um, uh, Carcetti was passing him so, notes. Yeah, drawing notes. Like, ease yeah. off. <laughs> Stop it. Because Carcetti's got his own plan. But it's interesting that we're seeing the, you know, the initial reason for this, or, or the, the the agenda point on this, uh, in this meeting was Burrell reporting the 12% discrepancy. Yeah, the lowest stats. Uh, or the, it was 8%, 8% at yeah. this stage. Yeah. And um, how they're treating it as an anomaly. So it's, it's interesting. This is what kind of another great thing about The Wire. You see, you know, we talk about all these disparate plots but they're all part of one big breathing city and so whatever bunny colvin's doing over here is affecting the numbers that are happening in the comstat that yep. then get reported uh, by burrell in the council meetings yeah, that yeah. carchetti then sees and and so it's like it's uh, and, that, and that goes all the way down to bubbles it's six degree of separation yeah um one thing here we see we see how vicious carchetti can be and he's got a point and it's like a little it's like a little 
like a little Jack Russell. Yeah, exactly. With just a got, ball. Got a hold of your of your, of your testicle. Um, <laughs> oh, is that oh. what you meant by the ball? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! It's like yeah, you're throwing a ball and he's grabbed it. And you're trying to wrest it out of his out of the, out of the mouth, and he's not likable. And no. he's got Un- unlike Jack Russell's. Yeah, unlike Jack Russell's, yeah. Jack Russell's, which are very very nice uh, <laughs> pets. But yeah, that's the thing. He's he's got a point. He's got a very very valid point. But that isn't necessarily a platform to launch your political career because you have to be liked. Generally, you have to be a liked person, uh, especially as someone who is at a disadvantage in the city. You have to be someone that people can warm to. And that's the point that uh, D'Agostino makes. He's like, dude, you're right. You're right. You're right. But also you're a dick. Um, We need you to not be a dick. Don't be a dick. And then uh, D'Agostino goes to his wife. Isn't he a dick? And she's like, sometimes you're a dick. <laughs> you're such a dick. <laughs> you're saying I'm not likable? Jen? When you're at home talking with me, not the council, not the cameras, you're great. When you tell me what's really important to you, I believe. You're smart and you're ambitious and you've got a sharper tongue than most. You can hold court and you can tell a good story and you can win the argument if you want. All of that shows, Tommy. And at a Baltimore City Council meeting, it shows well. But if you want to be mayor or senator or governor one day, show him something more. He's quite sure of himself. I think it's I think it's fair to say. This is the voice of Andy Brassel, who is one of the hosts of the Football Ramble and on the Continent podcast and is a huge fan of The Wire. But re- really, I think... He's actually got quite a lot in common with with McNulty in a in in, in a certain way because um, he's got such a, a strong sense of of what is right from a work perspective. He doesn't he, he doesn't let reasonableness get in the way, so it just plows through. He's this he's this dynamo. He's this force of nature, and it's actually um, that dinner he has with. Teresa and his wife that that sort of talks him into this space where they, they, they sort of just break it. You've got to be more likable. You know, you can be motivated. You can have great ideas, but people have got to actually like you at, at, at the end of it. Of course, that's the thing that McNulty has never either never realized or never cared about that people have to like you for you to be able to get on in a in a, in a work situation and i like the point she made about facts like yeah. yeah you're right you have facts but look um reagan didn't have any facts yeah uh he couldn't have couldn't have named a single fact uh, but he had personality mm-hmm. and so you know that that's what he's lacking you know for all the sort of um as good as he is at playing the political game, it's not enough to 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 get him that top job. Yeah, and so we see him go into sort of what PR training, yeah, kind like of, media right? training. Yeah, so there's a guy telling him, you know, use uh, I forget what the advice was. Use shorter sentences. Wear a cap that says "Make America Great Again." Uh, <laughs> Don't do that. No one should do that. <laughs> but yeah. I thought. Um, what really troubled me in that moment was the look on Tommy Carcetti's face as he's watching himself on oh, a video. It's he like enjoyed it a lot, didn't he? Oh, he was like close to climax. It was <laughs> it was disturbing. I like, whenever I whenever I hear myself on tape or watch see myself doing something or <laughs> wait, I don't like see, where this is going. See a picture of myself, I I recoil, I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. who's, who's this knobhead? I feel sorry for everyone who has to like see me. But he was like, look at he was proper narcissist isn't he? I think I think that's most people's reaction I think yeah. we all have that and we have the same with our own voices yeah like you, it's, it's you guys are fine listening to this but we have to listen to this with our own voices yeah. back it's just horrendous it's horrible um but yeah he seems he's just a stone-cold narcissist yeah. in many ways like he's a political McNulty in he's a philandering egotistical narcissist who's very good at his job right yeah absolutely this is the series where it all starts to to fall apart, and it's, it's it's falling apart between Avon and Stringer, even before we get to that famous scene, which is probably the most famous scene in in the Wire, isn't it? Where um, Avon tells him what he thinks of him, albeit in a quite friendly way, but he, he tells him that he thinks he's he's too soft for the game, and he's maybe not smart enough for 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 the straight world. Uh, and that's something that really hurt Stringer 
that really pushes him over the edge. You don't really see him hurt, do you? He's he's quite an invulnerable, as you say, very business-like sort of character. But that bit where Avon pokes the bit of him and says exactly what he most fears about himself, that's the bit that makes him blurt out and go, yeah, okay, I killed D'Angelo. And what do you think about that? Let's head over. Let's head west. Let's head west. Let's head to Amsterdam. And what we're getting here, uh, cold open, we see, again, what we talked about last episode is Amsterdam's working in terms of reducing crime elsewhere. But in this own, in these, in these three little areas, there's lots of other crime happening, uh, which isn't being policed, which Bunny Colvin, which Bunny did not legislate for with his little experiment. Drug dealers there, they're walking around with loads of money. Of course, why not be, why not be taken advantage of with sticker parties? Yeah. They don't have weapons. Yeah. Because don't use weapons, don't no, you know, don't use anything, no, no overt weapons, which leaves you so open to um, being taken advantage of, and which which is what happens. We see at the start, and that first drug dealer made me laugh when he was just like, "What did he say? What? Where's a cop when I need one? Something, <laughs> yeah, something they need. So perfect. Yeah, something yeah. they need the police to like help them out. Yeah, it's 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 such a nice twist, and I, I like the way it's going. Where you just can't, but it's got such a great idea but he just hasn't thought about all the different layers. And it's, it's easy to see, you just can't think. You need to think things through, which is uh, not what not tends to be what happening in, uh, what's happening in politics today. <laughs> Absolutely. It was an absurd idea, you know, to them. We got to speak to the absolute legend and gentleman that is Robert Wisdom, the man that brought Bunny Colvin to life. As, as, it, as it was an absurd idea to everybody who heard it, you know, it's just like, but... It made a profound sense, and it showed the the you know uh, uh, the disconnect between um, what's needed and what's mandated, um, you know. And uh, yeah, so when all these you know, I bring all these guys over, and, and we're like, and I'm you know, lay down a law on them, and they're like, you know, this nigga crazy, you know, <laughs> you know, and. And, and, but then gradually it was just, it was just the dark momentum of it. You know, when you had the, you know, when you had the users, uh, congregating, um, then that brought the dealers, you know, and, uh, and then you had the, you know, all of, all of those kinds of things. And then, you know, as, as you saw, Bunny had to deal with, um, you know, Families left behind, the old lady that was left behind. Uh, he had to deal with, um, you know, how to dispense of, you know, getting, red, you know, uh, hospital workers and, you know, all of those healthcare workers in with supplies, to, like handle this uh, thing that did not have a budget item, you know, did not have a budget to do it. So it's like you're coming out of, you know, trying to find money, you know, from Peter to Paul. This episode really hammers that home mm. uh, when the deacon comes to yes. comes to visit Amsterdam. So Bunny invites him down, kind of like uh, optimistically. I think Bunny's kind of proud of it when yeah. he's bringing him here. Like, I need to show you something. Like, look what I did. And he's coming off the back of this now, now 12% drop in, in, in crime. Mm-hmm. He's excited. Um, and the deacon doesn't give him the reaction he expects. He says you know, what in God's name have you done here? He's horrified. Yeah. He sees, you know, he sees it the way Bubbles saw it in the last episode. Except from uh, not being a, not from the point of view of an ex-addict or addict. Yeah. Um, but actually, yeah, it's inter- Yeah, you're right. He doesn't see it in a, in a different perspective, which is one that I think we as an audience hadn't even considered. He says, um, where are the condoms? Where are the, the, the clean yeah. needles? Um, you know, where's the, um, the clean, sex clinic? Clean water. Clean water? Yeah, clean mm. water, running water. Like all the essentials that, um, that a society kind of needs. Clean water is the foundation of like... Right, all of public health. Exactly. Yeah. And they, they don't even have that. So it's like, again, you know, back to what I was saying in the last episode about like this being very much like Deadwood. It, it's, it, it's, it's all of these things of that, that, of that we take for granted in like a civilization being developed, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Um, and I love that, obviously, the writers and David Simon and everyone involved in the wire have, have thoughts about, 
thinking a few steps ahead of Bonnie Colvin and to introduce someone like the Deacon here who's so pivotal and brings his team together. It's like, we need... Because initially he's horrified, but at the same time he doesn't say we need to shut this down. He's just, okay, this is what you've done. I'm not sure why exactly, but if you're going to do this, we need to make sure we do it properly. And the team that he brings in, uh, like I think you just you need to think these things through. This is what Bunny Colvin, again, I've said it before, they just didn't think it through. We need some basic health and safety. We need yeah. some. Um, there's going to be prostitution there. Give people condoms because HIV, syphilis, herpes, um, all these things are just are going to be spreading wildfire here because there's no there's no legislation outside of you can deal drugs here, which means it's going to bring other vices to this these regions. And even Bunny admits his own failings mm. in that regard. He said, "You know, I, I, I'm a police officer and I stop crime. You know, I can't solve these things." Yeah. Uh, so you know, and that's what's kind of good about Bunny is that he's, um. A humble, very humble, in a humble yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's aware of his own limitations. Um, but it's quite encouraging, I thought, when you do get that scene of the the sex workers in or the the sexual health workers in mm. there um, handing out condoms and clean needles, and it's like that gives you this glimmer of hope that you know, hang on, like maybe this weird little social experiment Could can work. work. Yeah. And what I really appreciate that they did. This is podcaster and academic Andrew Johnston, our Baltimore expert. Is showed how fucked up that would be if you did it the way Bunny did it. Because in America we have a problem, which is that we come up with good ideas and then we stop thinking them through. The Deacon's in quite a few scenes in this episode, which is great. And he's, he's starting to help out uh, Cutty as well. Um, I really love the Deacon. I think he's such a he's such a, he's, he's an important ancillary character in in the Wire, and he's is a vector of change. He's someone that people lean on from both sides. You know, you got Colvin, who's a major in the Baltimore Western District, and you got this guy who's recovering from recovering from being in prison. He's trying to get on the straight and narrow after like time in prison and time on the um in gangs and he's and he's also leaning on the deacon and the deacon are helping the deacon's helping both these guys out and down a pathway to hopefully you know goodness yeah you're right deacon the deacon's one of the few characters in the wire who's like effectively changing thing the world around him Mm. like he's and he he's it it, because he's so well connected and a pillar of this community yeah um and so ethically right-minded and sure of himself he's he is this kind of beacon of light the be a, a deacon beacon <laughs> <laughs> and also a pool hustler <laughs> yes uh, yeah i like that they they added in this little character flaw in mm. him where he's like uh he triples the guy's money like yeah. he's taking this guy he's yeah. gonna clean he's this guy out to town with that, with that break yeah. he just knew that that guy's face after he did that break he was like oh <laughs> Uh, never play pool with a deacon. <laughs> Are you charging for it or tuition free? Tuition will come back to him tenfold in a quiet reason. Besides, nothing in the world is more expensive than free. That's all she wrote. Let's double it. Nah, man. I don't like taking money from a church going, man. Triple it. Your break, deacon. We need to talk some more about Amsterdam. I never said it was pretty. Pretty doesn't even come close to the problem. We need to talk. I got comps that meeting. I'll drop by later on. You know, the other thing the Deacon did do, like you said, is help um, help Cuddy make this this transition into into his new straight and narrow life. And, you know, there's that moment where it's like, uh, maybe you you can do basketball. Uh, and here's here's another example. I like that Cuddy kind of meets uh, a, a a role model almost of what he could be, yeah. and he sees what he could be to to the community. Um, but he realizes, yeah, no, using his fist, fists, he's not a ball guy. Using his fists is his thing, and he gets a he gets his own sort of boxing. Yeah, he gets gym. that kind of that spark of energy spark motivation and i mean you see he walks into the first of all they go to a nice shining glimmering gym i guess 
Um, and then this guy Roman, who the demon, who the deacon introduced him to, um, int- says, "Here's a, here's a place which um, is a bit shit. We can help sort it out." But you can see Cutty's already like, "No, I can see, I can do this. This is this is what I can do. I can sort this out. Don't worry about me. I'm I'm good here. Thank you, thank you very I much." I love this. I thought Chad Coleman says very little in this episode, mm. but he conveys. Oh, the way he conveys the the sort of the that glimmer of excitement and hope and, and optimism. And even that, there's that beautiful, there's so many beautiful lines in this episode in particular, which was uh, written by Richard Price. But Cuddy in that moment when he, he's in that empty gym, which is literally just filled with promise mm-hmm. uh, and hope and dreams. And, you know, we, we've, we've all been there. You step into a new home or, a, you know, an empty office in the morning and it's like the potential is just laid out in front of you like yeah. a blank page uh chad coleman conveys that so well and then he says the line um you know that the, the guy who's brought him there says i can give you help to clean all this stuff up and he's like no i gotta do this myself yeah. you know this is my journey i've got to go from a to b and the, uh, that just got me nice. it really got me i mean uh, cutty is the sort of beating heart of this series yeah. I think him, so him and Colvin. Him and Colvin, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, because they and they're very similar characters. They are, and in both ways, and and Cutty's going through a transition. So Colvin's trying to attempt, trying to put his district through a transition. Yeah, and and, and we see that the theme of transition occurs throughout this whole season. Stringer Bell's trying is going through attempting transition you know and they're all but they're all facing difficulties you know um to to varying degrees because changing yourself or changing the environment around you is not easy particularly when there are so many roadblocks this is the voice of dave pickering he's a podcaster and a huge fan of the wire bunny colvin comes in in season two and very much like cutty he is interested in building his communities he might be a police officer whereas Cutty has come from uh, the streets but both of them are interested in building and rebuilding community and connections between people so we've talked about some of the problems that that Corbyn's going through in terms of not actually understand not actually understanding what he needs to do to get this thing working one of the things that Cutty's done well is the fact he's kind of separated himself from from the people who were holding him back. So now he's kind of standing by himself and joined forces with the deacon. One of the problems that Colvin has is that he still has to answer to A, the people above him, but also he's got to answer to the people who are working for him. And that's where we start to see kind of a seed of a lot of doubt from from the Calicho mainly. Um, and we see them talking about it. There's a bit of a get together. Calicho's, in my opinion, unnecessarily angry. <laughs> yeah, he is super angry. Yeah. Um to the point where I don't know was it in this is it in this episode with the computer? Yes. The, yeah, yeah. The, um that was kind of un- unnecessarily over the top when um <laughs> so Herc Herc um after the the after drug the dealers up. have been robbed, yeah, yeah the stick up, uh Herc brings them in to, to play around with the computer identikit thing, which they turn out to be the the drug dealers turn out to be really good at it, and he kind of gets in and they start having fun with it. But yeah, the level of anger um, displayed here by uh, what's his name, Calicio. Calicio, sorry, I keep forgetting that. Um, kind of feels unwarranted, but I guess, but I guess it's probably this build up of frustration from this whole experiment because he is clearly not comfortable living and working kind of side by side with the people he traditionally sees as the enemy. Yeah, Yeah. It's, it's true. Um, I still, I mean, I think people have different motivations, different motives for, for becoming police. And there are those people who feel that the law is the law or they, they have the, I don't know, they have the divine right in a way. And I feel he doesn't, he has that in a way that's just not really helpful. Whereas Bunny is someone who, he wants to do good and even though it's not necessarily there in black and white in the rule book he's trying to see what can affect the most change for the positive even though he's perhaps not fully appreciated what needs to be done to do to get that change yeah he's breaking a lot of eggs in the process yeah. but at least he's trying to make an omelette yeah and you've got to <laughs> applaud him for that um and for me when you think of 
police brutality. We've talked about it a bit in the wire. Um, you know, for me, it's like you, you feel, I get the feeling that Kalicha is one of those guys who's happily yeah. get, get his knights to count and start whacking people um, for stepping out of the line and give them talking back to him. Definitely, he he and, and Herc feel him. like they're carved from the same cloth. Yeah, um, and Carver's kind of also made from the same cloth, but he's a, he's a cut above, mm-hmm. uh, has a little bit of intelligence, but also has loyalty, and that's yeah. what he expresses in the, his sort of defense of Colvin. Um, he's put his back, you know, he, he's um, gone out to bat for us on so many occasions. We need to do the same for him. Absolutely. But, but you know, I, I don't think, I think it falls on deaf ears. Right. The major case unit. Yeah. So Prez reports back on Bodhi's phone, which they stole in the last episode. And mm-hmm. he did a lot of sexy police work. Brilliant. And managed to trace the cell company to give him the details, of blah, blah, blah. And it basically was bought in, as you referred to previously, the Quickie Mart. <laughs> Lots oh, of Quickie or Marts. Or a Quickie Mart. Lots of Quickie Marts down the motorway. And they do a bit of, like, putting pins in a map. Um, and which is an essential bit of any police work. You need, you need, You've got to have a map. You need your chalk, you need your corkboard. And you need pins. Yes. With the map. And, and you also need a uh, loads of faces on the corkboard. Yes. With string attaching <laughs> to them to, to each other. <laughs> um, I mean, basic basic deduction here says that they're buying them at these these stores. Follow the line down. Um, like they're doing like a two hundred mile round trip to just get all these burner phones that we talked about in the previous episode. And they send the two dogs' bodies of uh, Kima and Nolte to chase down the trail of where the phones have been bought because they can use that as leverage to get up on the case on on the phones for the burners for the for the Barksdale crew um and we see this it's a bit of a little road trip isn't it with yeah Keelan, yeah Keelan yeah and Ulti going down the, it is going down the road and meeting the different quickie mark people and, uh, and they have well they have no luck people. with uh, any of the security cam none of them have security cameras yeah and they're all part of the same chain but there's one at the end of the road there's one outlier yeah. one outlier um, who, you know, uh, fortune has it, does have all the receipts and just happened to be the one that uh, Bernard Bernard uh, <laughs> bought eight in one go yeah. to get a blowjob. And, yeah. and they remember him. They remember him for it. He comes regularly. Yeah, he's but, always here. Yeah. Oh, the, the mobile phone guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they say squeak after that. <laughs> they say squeak after that. Don't get me wrong. They enjoyed squeak. But they're like, oh, man, you were just, oh, so hard. No, they had sympathy for Bernard. <laughs> they had no, there was no sympathy for Squeak whatsoever. We got her. We got Mia Arnis. This is Mia Arnis. She plays Squeak. She, I mean, you know, there were people who, you know, loved her sassiness and brashness, but that, that was a common thing amongst amongst everyone <laughs> squeak just left it all up you know squeak was you know a big part of the downfall that was people's yeah there was no sympathy towards squeak. but yeah there's no there's still no there's still no uh, security footage but then so then we go on this weird little side adventure where <laughs> mcnulty decides to do this like play this play the race card yeah or play the racist card play the race, so yeah play racist cop yeah, he he, and this is a weird scene. I think it's like this very much played for laughs. Um, well, that's at least I think was the intention. Like mm. the McNul- you know, we meet McNulty talking to this small town sheriff, and uh, in, McNulty, in McNulty's like, head, oh, yeah, well, he's, he's a racist. He's so be racist. Just be racist. Yeah. Um, and then you know the, the punchline is he's he's got a black wife. Yeah. Um, uh, and so then McNulty starts like reeling it in a bit. <laughs> hey, have you met my partner? <laughs> I got, like I feel like this almost needed a laugh track over it. <laughs> and I love the so they they do manage to get camera footage and the cop that they that McNulty's trying to be racist pals with says to Kima like, hey, your partner is a, he's a bit of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a little hard on the scene, but. Because it was an effective comedy beat, it just felt a little bit. Sometimes the comedy feels a little bit off color. Off, co- off yeah, color. Well, yeah. nicely put. Um, but you know, you, you could unpack this a little bit of like McNulty having, uh, you know, it's it's in many ways debunking stereotypes. Mm. Like he saw a uh, small town white sheriff and made an assumption. Yeah. That- um, 
So and and that assumption cost him. It was over, like he really swung for the fences with with that weird play. Like, couldn't you have just gone in and just asked him? Yeah, like, what was all that about? Like, I need to get him on side. Yeah. You could talk about the weather, sports, anything. What your favorite dinner is? He's like, a lot of a lot of things you could have talked about first before. Hey, I'm going to pull out the race card. Oh shit! Oh, um, you're this guy. Into, oh, this guy looks like a racist. I better be a racist. <laughs> <laughs> this brings back. Uh, I love. I love present this in this in this in this episode. But this, <laughs> so they get the they get the <laughs> they get the videotape and give it to Prez and Fitzhugh. Fitzhugh comes back. The FBI guy comes back because that's uh, in like in 2003. That's the only time the only people that had any video editing they're, software. They're the only FBI. department that had VHS. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a tape. You had to borrow it from the from the AV department. Put it into that machine, <laughs> the VHS machine. <laughs> uh, Press is such a lovable dweeby nerd. In this. he's so dweeby. Yeah, I love it. He's basically he does he does his Blade Runner move, doesn't it is, he? Isn't it? He's like enhance. <laughs> exactly, enhance. <laughs> He's, I mean, he's so wonderful in his delivery of yeah. this. Uh, he, he's like, but like, if it makes perfect sense for this kind of um, weird um, sort of dweeby enthusiasm for a man who's just locked up in this office. Like, like we as an audience get to experience the city in its entirety. Prez's entire world is a computer and phoning like cell phone companies to get receipts yeah. for like it's like he's doing some boring ass work, but, but good work. It, but but and he does work. love it. And he does love it. He loves it to bits. You get your kicks where you can if you're Prez. And in the background of that uh, of that scene with uh, Prez and the, the videotape, McNulty goes and checks his messages. Or, you know, he's been waiting to, to call, return Brianna's call because yes. he doesn't seem to yeah. have a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to his desk phone, calls Brianna back, and uh, arranges to meet her i thought this scene was was brilliant the um and like hats off to michael hyatt yeah. who plays uh brianna barksdale um at least i think it's she's michael and not michelle or something but yeah it's, it's michael it, it is michael okay. yeah um she was she's absolutely brilliant in this scene because she says very little but she's just trying to hold it together and the lip is trembling and it's she portrays a grieving mother being basically told it's her fault that yeah, her son died by yeah. by Minolte. absolutely brutal what, yeah. he, what he does to her look i'm just sorry i brought this whole mess up to begin with because frankly no one's gonna do shit about it anyhow whoever killed him wanted to pass it off as a suicide but cops are happy enough to have one less murder to investigate on top of that the anna rundle state's attorney doesn't give a fuck i'm not supposed to give a fuck so i guess your son just got squeezed between the sides Squeeze between what sides? Look, two years ago, we hung more wire on your brother's crew than AT&T. And at the end, D'Angelo was this close to flipping, giving up everybody, everything. You know all that, right? You were the one who went down that detention center and talked your son out of a deal. I kind of liked your son, you know? All things considered, he was a pretty decent kid. And it grinds me that no one ever spoke up for him. Seems to me that nobody ever will. But mostly at this point, I'm sorry I bothered his girl. And I'm sorry she bothered you. Why go to her? Why not come to me first? Honestly? I was looking for somebody who cared about the kid. I mean, like I said, you were the one who made him take the years, right? And why, why do you think he he laid into her like that? I think he's just. I think he's just not even bothered. To be honest with you, yeah. He, you know, he says he kind of likes. He kind of liked D. Um, I think they were really put out because I don't know. Maybe there's a grudge that he holds because they did try and get D'Angelo a deal, and it was clearly her that that it was her that made him made D'Angelo change his mind on the deal and trying to take the twenty years. And I think that 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 final comment, which is cutting. Uh, that he makes when she says, "Why didn't you contact me? Why did you contact Danette? And he was like, "To be honest, I wanted to keep. I wanted to speak to someone who I thought cared about him." And she's like, "Why do you think I don't care? I'm his mother." And she's and he's like, "Well, you're the one that made him take the twenty years." 
Uh, in some ways, he's you know he's he, got it, yeah. he is right. Yeah, you know, well he's not he's not wrong, but it doesn't make her pain any any less any less. Yeah. No, um, but it was it was such a it was a, a nice kind of scene there, and we started to see again McNulty's side antics coming to some kind of <laughs> kind of fruition. Side antics, yeah. Do you think? But McNulty's kind of playing her a little bit. I think he I think he's pushing her as far as he can in order to provoke her and stir things up within the Barksdale. Well, I think he's happy to stick his oar in. Um, yeah. I think, he could, I mean, he could have just said, yeah, um, I've just done some investigations. I think D'Angelo was killed, um, but I can't do anything about it. So I'm, I'm sorry. And then walked out the door, but he went, no, no, no. Someone, someone definitely killed him because there's no way he explained everything about it. If they wanted, if it, if it was a, impromptu killing he would have been stabbed and he explained everything and yeah. it was just kind of like well you know there's definitely someone in your guys or your brother's team that's that's done this and uh, there's only one person insinuating there's only really one person who could have done this if it wasn't Avon by the way it could have been Avon so he just kind of he just keeps and just keeps and jabbing at her little little jabs which seem innocuous but at the same time they all kind of start things going off in her brain must be a lot of neurons firing going on his as to, to try and understand what happened to her son when they thought it was something simple which you know clearly wasn't hi guys uh, my name is Grant I'm from Aberdeen in Scotland uh, big Wire fan. I only discovered your podcast about a month ago and I've just got up to date. Today I've been binging it, loving it, so keep up a good walk. Um, one of my favourite scenes from season three, um, it's one from an early episode where Cutty and Weeby are outside in the prison and they're just having a chat and there's a baseball game going on. And Avon starts walking across the field and everybody on the pitch just completely stops playing but nobody complains, nobody moans because it's Avon and he is still the boss inside the jail. And they all start playing again um, once he's off the field but again nobody who says anything, they just start playing. Um, and I think it links in really well with a later, a later episode and a later series where uh, I won't give away any spoilers, but you just know Avon, wherever he's going to be, he is, he is still got authority and he is still the boss. Thank you so much for that burner message. Um, if you want to send us a burner and join this esteemed crew of people, then this week we want to know, do you think Amsterdam is a good idea and why? If you want to submit to Burner, just send us an email with a voice memo of less than 30 seconds to burner at thewirestrip.com or you can go to our social media accounts, which are The Wire Stripped, at The Wire Stripped, both at Twitter and Instagram. And we have a phone number, which you can send a link via WhatsApp and send the message that way. Or you can, another thing you could do is go to our Patreon page. Another clean yeah. segue. Uh, our Patreon uh, uh, is at patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped uh, and we've got so many amazing uh, rewards that you guys can sign up for there Kobe why don't you tell them all about them well the first one that links directly to the burn is that if you are our patron if you join us on patron you get priority burner access so you will be heard and shown and listen and listeners will listen to your burners ahead of everyone else's and also you get the sweet stuff yeah, you get early access to the episodes a week before they go out. You get to hear uh, the full-length versions of all our interviews with the cast and crew. And you get to submit questions for mm-hmm. future interviews that we'll be doing. So we'll be signposting them on um, the Patreon. And you get to um, ask the cast and crew questions directly and then hear them back. Yeah. And one huge important thing about the Patreon is that we're not taking any money from it. All of the money... Uh, earned by our patron goes directly to the Ella Thompson Fund which is importantly for us it's a charity supported by the cast and the crew and the production team behind the wire yeah and with good reason because the the Ella Thompson Fund uh, helps so many of Baltimore's neighbourhoods by uh, providing recreational opportunities for children in those neighbourhoods it's an amazing charity 
So just to re-quote there, we are uh, patreon.com forward slash the Y stripped. Uh, please do find us there if you're interested in, in uh, becoming a member. All right, let's check in with uh, Marlo and his crew. Yeah. Uh, so we meet Marlo first in this episode, uh, just chilling in his weird, lonely VIP booth in a nightclub. I, I've got a question for you, Dave. Yeah. What's Marlo doing there? Does, yes, he, this is based on my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Marlo doesn't seem to be enjoying himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's he doing there? <laughs> it's a nightclub and he's sitting in a corner booth by himself yeah. looking, well, looking like he always looks. Not drinking, not dancing. As he says, I, no, I don't do that. Yeah. Um, not even bopping to the music. He's just there. Well, dude, what are you doing there? Just go home, read a book. I feel like in many ways, like Marlowe's like a lizard person, right? As in like, he's like, almost like an alien trying to fit into this world Like an under the skin. Him. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I've never seen that, but I've, I've, uh, I, I presume it's about lizard people in nightclubs, not da- dancing. Like alien people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he feels like he's not really a part of this world. Yeah. He's, he's almost like, um... Yeah, he's but he's trying, but he's almost try. He's not interested in human connection either, no. but clearly has a, a sexual appetite, but no interest in like, um, like a connection. He's he's not as in he's not looking for a relationship or a partner. No, but that- but and he wasn't even really looking for sex. No, that that sex it scene just- for me is one of the weirdest sex scenes ever because it does it's, it doesn't seem to be enjoying it. Yeah, it's almost like he was just box ticking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like. Oh, I guess I'm here. And and it was pretty much just because it was presented to him. Well, I, I got the impression. And, you know, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such an enigmatic character. We still don't know what, what drives him, what motivates him, what he enjoys. But this, is, this isn't it. He doesn't enjoy this. He likes cars, I think. Yeah, he likes cars. Yeah. He, likes, he likes business. Yeah, um, cars and business. But it's just not... Um, he doesn't seem to be playing a part of natural of like society as everyone else. Marlo Stanfield doesn't get much time on screen in season three. Less than half an hour and with minimal dialogue. But in that short time, he navigates, manipulates and calculates like nobody else. Here we have the super fan and mega expert and podcaster, Joe Kylie. If the game is chess, Marlo is a grandmaster. Always several moves ahead across multiple matches, turning every problem to an advantage. Stringer acknowledges Marlowe's head during their meet, and even Avon respects him for, in his words, showing heart. However, they both underestimate him. He sees Stringer's offer for what it is, an attempt at control, so he immediately tools up for war. And when Avon lays a honey trap, Marlowe sees through so thoroughly that it's Avon who pays in his blood. Even Herc and Carver know better than to push things too far, backing down from a confrontation on his turf. Marlowe is unlike anyone we've seen in the wire to date. He's the embodiment of ambition, so singularly focused on the crown, that he is lost to empathy. He is as ruthless and uncaring as the city which spawned him. The same conditions which produced the deeply moral Omar give rise to the amoral Marlowe. He certainly doesn't um, pay this woman any of the sort of basic, common, decent courtesies that you would expect (laughs) between two humans interacting with each other, even in a situation uh, where they're going at it in the the back of a a, a SUV in a (laughs) car park of a horrible nightclub. (laughs) He closes the door in her face, like chivalry is dead in Marlowe's world. I mean, he he grabs the digits and that's it. But I mean, yeah, but also reluctantly, she basically has to force her number into his phone. But he, I mean, he's this. I mean, I, could, I guess there's an there's an understanding of why you can kind of see why he's standoffish, and rightly so in this case because well, yeah, <laughs> in this case she's been planted to get him killed essentially. Yeah. Um. But I mean, does that happen to him all the time? And if so, why are you out in a nightclub in the first place? Could just stay at home, be safe, as, be as safe as possible. Don't speak to any unknown girls or ladies that could, that could be working with with the Barksdales. Well, you're right, and that's an interesting. It's an interesting way to look at it because maybe that's the reason for his cold, disconnected personality. As in, he's so paranoid mm-hmm. and aware of the risks that 
of human connection um, that he's unwilling to make them for fear of the risk. Yeah. And it's almost like in this instance, he's just kind of throwing, he's testing the waters a little bit and he even says it to Chris, you know, he correctly um, sets up some security in place just in case this is a, a setup. This is a setup. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, he's a, he's a paranoid character who is, you know, much like Avon and String, paranoid for the right reasons. And even Freeman says it in this episode. He says, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being watched. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, like I say, his right to set up uh, surveillance and that gets ultimately Avon and a few of the guys shot in a, in a drive-by because Partlow and Partlow and guys observe that they're watching Marlow and team and decide to take some of that action into his own hands, which gets which gets Avon um, hurt and angry. And, it, and it's like you said in the last episode, this is another instance of Marlow outplaying Avon mm. at his own game. Yeah. He's doing it better. He's he's younger. He's he's hungrier. He's Avon. He's colder. Yeah, he's, yeah. More, he's more calculated with it. Whether it's Avon, is like, let's get him. Let's get him. How? Avon's passionate. Yeah, he's too, but he's too, he's, he's, Avon is clouded. Mm. Um, he's lost perspective. Um, in the, you know, in that moment after he's been shot and he's been stitched up and he's in a warehouse and he's got the gang together and he's planning his, his attack. He's animated and excited. Like, he's the adrenaline. Is This is what's fueling it. Yes. Yeah, he's loving it. Yeah. Even the moment right after he's been shot, even though, like, the dude next to him was shot in front of him. Yeah. That's over. And now he's just, like, patched up. And he's, like, he's almost begrudgingly respecting Marlo, doesn't it? He's, like, excited <laughs> when he says his Marlo's name. He's like, Marlo. Um, let's go to Stringer's little side, side gambit here. We have Stringer. With Clay Davis. Yeah, being <laughs> being absolutely schooled in, yeah, in like corruption rinsed. again. Um Clay Davis is such a pleasure yeah, to watch. Absolutely. Isn't he? This is one this is a this is a classic Clay Davis episode. Yeah. He's, he's oh, got a few lines here. And he gets the epigraph. He does get the epigraph. epigraph. Uh, crawl, walk, and then run. Three year string. Um and I'm just I'm always frustrated at Stringer Bell because he just He's been played. He feels he's been played, and he's rightly so being played. But it's it's a it's a world he doesn't understand yet. So why don't you just take a step back a bit and try and absorb what's going on a bit? Crawl, you say? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> but yeah, just take just take that take a beat. There's there's no reason to jump in like yeah. head first. Um, well, it's frustrating for him because he's. He's been the king of his small pond for so yeah. long, you know, and now he's transitioned into this, like, uh, what, what, you know, state pond and then the federal pond, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and he, yeah, he, he's hungry for it and he, and he wants it and he wants to, he's also, don't forget, he's got like, when he goes home, back to the funeral home, <laughs> he's got Avon and this war and all this bullshit, which he doesn't want doesn't to want deal party, with. Yeah. And he can literally see it like about to destroy everything. Yeah. And he's got McNulty and Brianne uh, on his ass about the D'Angelo thing. So this is like, things are partly he's over. motivated to get out of there. Yeah, and, it's true. And like legitimize himself. I can see that. I, I, that's a fair point. That's a really, that's a really good point. And at force, they kind of strong arms uh, Clay Davis to meet some, a random guy in in big glass building to uh, try and <laughs> yeah the guy yeah the money faucet yeah <laughs> that's a goose the goose, the goose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean oh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is so wonderful in this episode he with is. all his little uh, analogies and <laughs> the faucet <laughs> what faucet the money faucet the way that guy comes out of that that building almost like. You know, this weasley little ferrety movements, like you just, as in like, he's shifty, he's looking left and right, like you just know, he reeks of corruption, doesn't he? Does, he? Yeah. It's like, he's the literally the face of federal corruption <laughs> at, the, at the heart of this building. I don't know why we gotta wait three years for that shit, I'm ready to run now. No, you're not. Alright, why, do, why don't we, why don't we get to it, the big... The big moment, the big scene in this episode, the standoff. Well, it's like, it's like you said before, there's Stringer is seeing all this shit happening on his home turf and he he doesn't want to be a part of it. He faces off to Avon in a way. And you know, when when you when you see what McNulty's been playing at, kind of unraveling slowly the the murder 
struck suicide of D'Angelo. The first time I saw this, I thought it was going to be some kind of reveal that um, that came out of nowhere. I had never anticipated it would be Stringer himself that says, "Yeah, I I was the one that got I was the one that got D'Angelo killed." And then you had um, Stringer Bell taking over. It's in a sense becoming it was the Barksdale crew, but Stringer Bell was there for the guy before Avon came home. Give it up for Melvin Jackson Jr. Everybody, he plays. Bernard in The Wire. So it was just like he was the mastermind behind a lot of things in the business aspect. He saw a bigger picture than Avon did. Avon was more of the street guy. Stringer was more of the street savvy guy who had the business aspirations. And he found himself dealing with Clay Davis and and not um, getting what he thought he was getting out of the situation. So you see all these different people going through these these certain um, pivotal moments in their, their lives. Right, that's it for us this week. We're coming back next week for episode nine, naturally. comes after eight. Uh, mm-hmm. And that one's called Counting. Slapstick. This is the famous uh, complete slapstick comedy episode of The Wire. It is. A lot of people forget about this one. Yeah, Charlie Chaplin uh, joins in here. We've got some of the some of the scenes that uh, Macaulay Culkin did himself in Home Alone. Um, yep. Also the ones with um, you know Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern. <laughs> Uh, Rawls gets the custard. Remember the custard pie to the face oh, the scene pie. in the Comstat meeting. Yeah, brilliant, genius, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> so, in the meantime, uh, if you want to contact us, Kobe will tell you how. Yeah, contact us. We can you can do it so in a few ways. You can find us um, on Instagram and Twitter. We are at the Wire Strips at the Wire Strips on both of those channels. Um, if you do want to send us an email, you can do so uh, with burner at thewirestrips.com. Send us a little email there and we love to hear from you. And also our patrons can contact us very easily as well. We are patreon.com forward slash thewirestrips. We have a patron, right. don't you know? <laughs> yeah, and you got a direct line to us there. Um, thank you, uh, as always, uh, to Sam and Martin from the Song by Song podcast for the theme music for the show. Yeah, Simon Devro, uh, aka Devs Noodles, D E V Z Noodles, uh, on Instagram. You can find him there for the artwork for this season. Uh, thanks to our brilliant producer Obi Joshua for uh, pulling all the brilliant interview clips that you heard in this episode. Yeah, thanks very much to Ben Williams, who's been helping us this season with editing and production support as well. And as always, a huge thank you to T Bone, Mr. Tom Wally, our series producer and editor. We love you, Tom. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Tom. You do everything. This is a weird. What was that? Was that a baby voice? I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> That's your humble. It's your humble voice. Tom, if you can do, make that more macho. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for listening, guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Tom. You do everything. You just heard a stripped media production. <laughs> <laughs>